0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak, I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, DC. On this episode of Reaganism, guest host, Dr. Anthony Eames, director of scholarly initiatives at the Reagan Institute, speaks with Admiral Dave Oliver and Dr. Anand Taprani co-authors of American Defense Reform, Lessons from Failure and Success in Naval History. Anthony, Dave, and Anand discuss the book and what naval history can teach us about how to create change in the
1: Pentagon.
2: Hello, Reaganism podcast listeners. I'm Anthony Eames, director of scholarly initiatives for the Reagan Institute and your guest host today. And I'm pleased to be joined by Professor Anand of the Naval War College and Admiral David Oliver. we're here today to talk about your new book, American Defense Reform, which I assume is available yes. on Amazon yes. and everywhere. Everywhere, maybe if there's a Barnes and Noble, our border's still open by you, you can go pick it up. Uh, I'd like to jump right into this conversation because it's a, it's a really important topic that we here at the Institute are having on a regular basis. Um, certainly features into our Reagan National Defense Forum that we have every year. Um, I'm going to go to Dave here. You lay out a series of, of central challenges for defense reform um, since basically the end of World War II, but the central tension really seems to exist um, between short-term needs, short-term obligations, and long-term planning. Can you, can you give me a little insight about how you came to that realization?
1: Anand and I met three four years ago, and we realized we both were interested in the same thing which is how does defense change from a focus on Russia, even with Crimea happening and now Ukraine. In other words, real challenges still existing with Russia. But you know you have to go to consider what's going on in China, the South China Sea effort, China, and environmental issues. The question is how does it do that given all the tensions that exist short term between the services, between the Congress uh, administration and uh, defense but defense industry. So what we tried to do was go back and look at history to see if there was anything that guide us and what the best practices. Because we didn't want to try to stand up and, and tell you that you ought to find a minute, man, rather than an airplane or something like that, because that, that becomes lost in three months. So maybe yeah, for three months, but then it's lost. The key problem the president and the secretary of defense face is how do I institute change when I need to rebalance defense? And if you think about it, the last time this happened was after the Cold War. That's a long time ago. And essentially, you've had 9/11, and defense hasn't changed much. In other words, people just keep batting into that, and then Congress, in my opinion, it just sort of checks it off. They make some changes with respect to individual programs, but there's no rebalancing when. The country has to face that. What we wanted to do with our book was say, these are the best practices and establish something that somebody would believe us, why they were.
2: That's an interesting point, Um, using history as a good case study. uh, Your case study from the 1940s seems as relevant today as ever. Recent Reagan National Defense Survey shows that we've seen a decline in trust and confidence in the military, from 70% in 2018 to somewhere around 48% today. Mm-hmm. And the number one reason for that decline is the politicization of the military. Uh, Anand, you point out mm-hmm. in, in the chapter in the 1940s that in 1949, the Navy only had 4% public approval. 4%. Mm-hmm. How 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 did that happen? What what happened to the Navy? I mean, this huge important force in World War II that did such a good job in the Pacific. I mean, yeah. So, what was the cause of the plummet?
0: So, you know, after World War II, you have this sort of massive mobilization of of, of America to fight you know to fight the war, and after and when the war ends, you can't obviously maintain this system forever. You need to sort of have massive slashes uh, in defense spending. At the same time, you're doing something that's unparalleled in, in American history. You're going to maintain a large peacetime national security establishment. So these two very contradictory tendencies come to a head. Today we have a simple answer about that: we just engage in deficit spending. Back in the 1940s, you know, uh, if if you had talked to deficit spending about deficit spending with Henry Truman, he would have called you a communist and thrown you out of his office. He was determined to have a, de- uh, a balanced budget. So how is it that you you satisfy America's needs for a peacetime national security establishment while still balancing your budget and cutting taxes and cutting government spending. The answer was, uh, well, the answer that the administration arrived on was one that, in a sense, you know, you talked about trust in the military declining because of politicization. politicization. This is not a new phenomenon. What, What ends up happening in the 1940s is that the Air Force is able to sell a very, compelling, politically acceptable tale. It's a tale that blends the American desire to sort of cut spending and reduce deficits with Americans' love of the technology. And it's going to be how the Air Force is going to use long-range strategic bombers combined with the American nuclear monopoly to guarantee American safety into the, you know, uh, decades in the future at the lowest possible cost. It's politically convenient and it serves the Air Force's interests as a service. The Navy is caught, in a sense, trying to make an argument that it can't clearly define, that sea power is essential to American prosperity, but it's going to be, there's not going to be any sort of short-term payoff. It's going to be long and costly and expensive, and we need it even in the absence of any sort of threat. And ultimately, the Navy's preference for this sort of long-term strategic outlook conflicts with the sort of politically compelling tale that the Air Force has. And the Navy's response to this is not to, in a sense, reconsider the role of sea power and, and, and American security. It's to engage in even more crass-ranked politicization as the Air Force, which further erodes Americans' esteem in the military, particularly the trust between political appointees and the military, Certainly.
2: and this is the revolt of the admirals. The revolt of the admirals, which you term more the route of the admirals.
0: I mean, that's a, that's a term that that Dave uh, came up with. I uh, I prefer to call it the first great crisis in American civil military relations. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the the span between Truman and MacArthur is just a hiccup, because after all, we have to remember the Navy basically engaged in a coup d'état against the Truman administration. It fabricated evidence of corruption. Against the Secretary of Defense, it leaked it to sympathetic Republican congressmen who were also Navy Reservists in order to try and hold hearings to embarrass the administration from carrying out its constitutional obligations. In another country, we would call that a coup
1: d'etat.
2: Yet they're routed. Dave, how how did you come up with the the route of the admirals?
1: Because it's so ineffective that essentially the chief naval operation and other admirals are fired or forced to retire under various circumstances. And the Navy, I'm not even sure what would happen in the Navy because, if you remember, the President also delayed the, the, the elimination of the Marine Corps, the Marines got that turned around in Congress. And the Navy goes from $36 billion a year in budget in two years down to five. With, and doesn't generate new ideas. And the only thing that happens is the Korean War comes along, and those Air Force airplanes, why they're not doing to drop nuclear war bombs in, in China, Secondly, they can't even talk to the Army on the ground anymore. So if it weren't for what was left of the Navy, carriers coming in and providing close air support, then the Chinese would overrun our soldiers and Marines in in Korea. So that changes everybody and gives the Navy a chance to step back. But if you look at it from a perspective of history, the Navy, guys that I thought were really good, I then interviewed Admiral Burke and, and Admiral Anderson and all this time at, at the time. The navy performed terrible for the country. In other words, all these heroes of World War II, when the country had this real problem, they need to reduce the budget. They didn't come up with good ideas. They they tried to stand in the way. And so, what we're gonna, what we did then is compared then, then what happened post Vietnam, which is another, and then post Cold War, and said, did they operate differently?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good segue into um, kind of a layout of the the way you've. You've constructed these case studies. I should note you you had some some interesting sources in there um, from Dave's interviews with several uh, chief of naval operations. Can you walk me through this, Anna? Let's go back to you. Walk me through kind of the highlights of those case studies of the '40s, the '60s, yeah. the '70s, the '80s. Yeah, the '40s is is a is-
0: there are a lot of lessons to be drawn from the forties, but I think again to reemphasize a point I made earlier, the key lesson for civilian policymakers is the danger of listening to politically convenient advice. And it may be hard f- for people to believe this, but the military the, and the military services are deeply political animals, and offer the offer and the advice that they offer you is not. Is not always going to be disinterested. Sometimes it's going to reflect parochial service interests, and if you're not if you're not careful about that, you can potentially be led astray. The lesson to the 60s. Is in a, the 60s are in a sense a repeat of, of of the events of the 40s. In fact, I'd argue every major sort of defense fight from the 40s until Goldwater-Nichols is really about the same thing. But in the 60s, you have a civilian who's determined to impose meaningful civilian control. Over uh, a military sort of establishment that had almost grown out of control and that man was the most I'm one of the most consequential Americans of the 20th century. it's Robert Strange McNamara and McNamara has enough and it has three careers each of which is worthy of study. Just in terms of talking about what he did as Secretary of Defense was he implemented uh, the whole, he introduced into the Pentagon, the importance of systems analysis and systems analysis is basically two things it's the use it's understanding the cost of weapons as part of a system you don't just consider the cost of an aircraft carrier in isolation you consider it with all the other implements that make it possible to have an aircraft carrier planes ships uh uh, personnel the second thing was when you have disagreements about which weapons programs to fund you use principles derived from microeconomics to establish the most cost-effective way of generating national security, of marginal utility. How much capability do I get for every additional dollar that I spend? It's a very, it's in other words, the use of quantitative quantitative analysis to make military judgments. And it runs smack dab in the face of how the military sees its role. Professional military advice is fundamentally experiential. That means it's based on anecdote and it's inherently qualitative. And so ultimately, Civilians and and the military already weren't speaking to another uh, as 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 equals beforehand and now they're being driven even farther apart because At least in in World War II, after World War II, a lot of these people had actually served in the military during the war By the 1960s most of these kids out of uh, you know uh, Out of uh, PhD programs in economics have no way of relating uh, To the people that you know to the people in the military that they're supposed to be interacting with and uh, the Navy tries to fight this, uh, fight McNamara. And again, as in the 1940s, the Chief of Naval Operations gets fired. His successor makes, in a sense, a Faustian bargain. He He implicitly sort of says to the administration, I will back you on the things that matter to you if you look after the Navy's parochial interests. So I will back you on Vietnam, even though I think the war is being waged incompetently and we're not funding it properly as long as you give me what what matters to me. And he was an aviator, which meant that all he cared about was aircraft carriers. And so he got his aircraft carriers at the expense of basically not saying anything about Vietnam and how it was funded, which of course led contributed to the American defeat in Vietnam and the hollowing out of the military, which had not been properly funded during the war when the Johnson administration decided to sort of hide the cost of the conflict, which in turn led to the mess that Elmo Zumwalt had to, had to clean up in the 1970s, of which uh, events of which Dave directly participated.
1: Dave, maybe that's a good, good chance for you to comment here. Well, Anthony, what happens is uh, Zumwalt comes in and what most people don't realize for the Navy to survive, what, the, what it was set up was, is 29% of the people had to re-enlist. At the time Zumwalt came in, 8% were re-enlisted. There was no way you could recruit as many people, train, et cetera. And so what Zumwalt, his biggest problems were so, at the same time, there were race riots on carriers, in the Marine Corps, on large ships. So, and, and as Anana said, since they didn't fund these ships, etc., the living conditions were horrible on the ships. I, I mean, I've been there; they were, they were terrible. So what Sumo had to face was he needed to reinvigorate rein, rein, uh, the surface force, which he did by building two new kinds of surface ships. But he had to change socially change the Navy. And when he and he, when he started talking about race relations, remember that all of the senators and congressmen who controlled the committees that gave the Navy money were from the Deep South. And when he started talking about bringing women in, President Nixon on him has found a, a tape of it, said to him, I don't care what you do about the blacks, but hold off on this women stuff. So here is this guy who's trying to face a list. Now, he did a terrific job. I mean, I, I worked for him. My wife was his wife's best friend. He really did a terrific job. What did he do wrong? In other words, as soon as he leaves, the Navy starts backing off on those things full speed as stern. So how did he do it wrong, Anthony? And what we say is he had a staff, he had a small staff of about twenty one who did his bidding and made all his changes. but you got the Navy is at the time you know eight hundred thousand whatever you've got to you've got to get all those two hundred and twelve admirals you've got to get somehow. You've got to bring them inside and make them understand and make them appreciate what you're doing. Or as soon as you leave, they say, we don't understand this thing about women anyway, and, and why do we need blacks and browns in the Navy for? Et cetera. So how do you do it differently? We then go to Kelso, which is the end of the Cold War. And Kelso, almost alone of lots of people, he'd been reading the Soviet's mail for years because he's a nuclear submarine. Mm-hmm. He's focused on the so- Soviet Navy. And he says, they're really dead. The Navy needs to change to be a literal name to attack the problems they are gonna happen in the next 20 or 30 years. So what he did was he got 35 admirals and generals together. And what he, and he which is we called the breakfast club, and we'd meet at 5.30 in the morning so there were no other, nobody could say, I've got a phone call, I gotta make And, and you played a role in organizing I mean, this. I was directing this, so, so uh, but you meant, you meant there, and then we took we took these experts who would later become Kennedy in the next administration, several it would become politicals. We picked out these people from the FFRDCs and from the think tanks who we thought were particularly bright, Kennedy, and said, here are the problems we know we're gonna face. We want you to be our briefers. We let nobody else in the room, no staffers, took no notes, brought these these this intellect in and made these guys talk to each other about not only what they believed in, but where they thought the other guy was lying to them. Now, the point of this is, the point of our book is, you can't do this in two weeks. You can't decide, by golly, I need to meet the next budget, et cetera, et cetera. You, this is a transformational process for, it took us a year and a half. At the end of that time, what Kelso directed is we took, we killed the Navy's stealth airplanes. We said the Navy doesn't need the stealth. The Air Force is building wants the stealth. The Navy doesn't need stealth, airplanes. they're too expensive, not designed for carriers. So we killed that airplane, which was a big, because it was the A-12, have you ever heard of it? It was a loss, that went on forever. We killed that, we killed the new attack submarine, which was the SSN 23, which is already approved by Congress. Congress approved building 23 of them. We terminated it and said, no, we're gonna build a submarine. A third of it is expensive. We'll figure out how to do it. It's gotta be this way. But the point of it is, it says you don't need a submarine. If the Soviet is dead, Union is dead, the submarines have held them out. okay? We'll cut them in half, the numbers. numbers. We'll change the kind of... In other words, it made really big changes, structural changes. We had 20,000 airplanes in reserve. 787 airplanes that were carriers, 20,000 in reserve. Do you need that I mean, you didn't even need that during the call, but anyway, and you're spending ten million dollars a year on each airplane to maintain it. So we threw away ten thousand just with a stroke of it. And we said, let's make the navy and marine bases together. We did a bunch of stuff like that. So this process which which is essentially the different the difference is between Zumwalt and here is it became it took in all the guys, which does not mean one that they all agreed after a month or after six months or that we didn't fire a couple, right? Because you're going to have to shoot a couple in the head because they're going to prove they don't care about the country over their own parochial interests. Mm -hmm. But you give them a chance to show that to everybody else. And then when you shoot them in the head, everybody else says that was a good death. Well, we've been focusing on the Navy quite a bit. Obviously, it's
2: a... The lessons from which we draw for for defense reform, one of the um, the key points I think you you both make in the book is uh, inter-service rivalry. There's actually some benefit to inter-service rivalry. It doesn't have to connote or mean necessarily a deleterious effect on our national security. Um, I'll kick it back over to you, Dave, and then maybe, Anand, you can comment what are the benefits you see to
1: to, to healthy inter-service rivalry? As you get new ideas on the same thing. A service, once they've adopted an answer to a threat or to world conditions, they tend to gather around and say, you either accept an answer because we're going to build something that's expensive, and so we need to defend it someplace else. Whether or not it's like a Navy air uh, carriers versus Air Force wings or something. They deserve an answer. But you need it's really useful to have somebody who truly is a military person who understands military things who can say, for example, the example we give in a book is is a guy came to me once and said, I have this idea. The Air Force was finding it for a while and decided it was counter to the B seventy that we're trying to sell. Because it would generate it would generate missiles that could attack from a long distance. And I the chief of naval admiral at the time was unhappy with the air force and had told me to go fix some way that would cause a problem. And I said, I can marry that guidance with a new missile we were gonna build and decide not to for the Navy because it didn't make any sense. And we can we can then have a long range strike missile for the country, which Secretary Laird who was Secretary of Defense said, I really like that idea. And actually in 48 hours, we went from Somebody caused, stopped me in a hall and saying, "You see this thing the Air Force isn't doing to Secretary Laird saying it's the most important program we have in defense. It's for and it's a Tomahawk missile, which is which is proven to be a useful platform and actually we build them for both the Navy and Air Force. So that would not happen without service rivalry. So service rivalry is good, and it, and as you as you guessed, Secretary and particularly if it's if it's wound in with, with good secretaries of defense, good political who provide the direction and keep it under control. I don't mean just carpeting each other in the newspapers. I'm saying actually thinking about, okay, this is culturally the way I would do it if I were an Air Force officer. Is there a way to do this which is much better for the country? And I've seen those things again and again. And as anon will tell you, what happens is when we look at this, we said you know, these, th- these things are just, we've, we've, we've looked at the Navy, but there's a reason why we think this applies to the other services. I mean, before he starts, what happens if the Navy, if the Air Force and Army had done the same thing that Kelso, Admiral Kelso did in, in 90, it is extraordinary, and we talked about it our book, how many billions of dollars they would have had funded in different programs rather than the programs that later canceled because they didn't think about how the Cold War has changed this. And what, and what we question is what kind of army and air force would you have had when 9-11 happened And other words with capabilities? So Anand can discuss. Yeah, I don't Why don't you give us a little comment on that? Maybe yeah. some historical examples here.
0: Yeah, so obviously uh, what I'd say is you know, for someone like me who fancies himself a defense intellectual uh, and who believes very strongly in the notion of strong and assertive civilian control of the military, I want to sort of state that for the record, as you know, somebody who admires Robert McNamara, we are not arguing that the country should—civilian leaders should abdicate their responsibility and just turn everything over to the military. You know, Dave made the point is that this process only works if you have strong civilian leadership. The question is, how is civilian leadership supposed to be exercised? So we use, you know, two terms— very, you know, very carefully. Like, civilians are supposed to provide guidance, support, supposed to provide leadership. They're not supposed to engage in direction, and that's the language that's actually in Title Ten, and it's in Title Ten because it wasn't in the original National Security Act. you look in nineteen in the nineteen forty-seven uh, National Security Act, direct does not figure into the Secretary of Defense's uh, responsibilities. There was a hope in the nineteen forties after the war that all of these uh, people who had all fought together in the war would come together and that you'd actually encourage through this process of like competitive, you know, know, this competitive process, uh, one where you all respected one another, but would compete with another to offer the best solutions for the country. You'd achieve national, strong national defense without the heavy hand of sort of centralized direction. And what, and Jim Forrestal believed in this to his very fiber and being. And it's probably the reason why he went insane and threw himself out of Bethesda Naval Hospital. Jim Forstall, the first Secretary of Defense, Defense. for our and, uh, and Bob McNamara is determined not to be another Jim Forstall or not to be another Lewis Johnson who was the target of the revolt of the admirals. And in 1958, the power for the Secretary of Defense to direct the services is put in the National Security Act and it has remained in there ever since. So the Secretary has all of this power. We don't actually deny that that's the case and we don't think it's necessarily a bad thing in there. And in some instances, it might be necessary for the secretary to exercise their, you know, his or her power to direct national defense. But we're trying to argue that ultimately there is a knowledge deficit here. You cannot possibly, no one person no even small group of people can possibly get their head around the the sheer complexity of national defense particularly the more technical and esoteric elements of this you do have to in a sense there is no alternative to people actually operating on the basis of mutual trust and respect and that's honestly you know handbooks on civil military relations don't tell you how to achieve that Pretty much every textbook on military civil-military relations I've read is useless because it's actually not concerned with the most important thing the Pentagon does. The Pentagon is not involved in fighting wars. The Pentagon is there about managing resources and providing forces for the people in the field. And we don't actually have a way of understanding how those relations are supposed to take place. And we hope, Dave, uh, Dave and I hope, that this book offers us a way about thinking about that relationship and it might not be in a, it, might, it might not lend itself to like a snappy sort of soundbite or a quick sort of fix. It's all about sort of processes and understanding where leadership is important as opposed to direction, and and hoping that ultimately, you know, when people have the chance and have their say, uh, they will act in the they will act in the best interest of the country rather than their own parochial interests.
2: Well, let's let's talk about the the the, the people beyond the Pentagon. The different stakeholders in, in our national defense and our national security, you lay out some recommendations in this book for Congress, for private industry, for political appointees, which is to say the executive
1: branch. Um, Actually, what happens is we want anything is what we're trying to do. We said those people influence it, so you need to discuss it. Mm-hmm. And and first of all, with respect to the administration, uh, we, we have a whole section in there where we talk about how the military as historically, all militaries have been historically unwilling to change. The guys have worked all their lives to learn how to work with the tools they have, the, the tactics they have, and and they're so comfortable with it, it's really hard to get them to change. It's what each Secretary of Defense comes in worrying about. is how I'm going to get people to change. And we give examples for each service, how they've, how they've been reluctant to change to their detriment, whether... It's why we didn't do Blitzkrieg when, uh, and why the British didn't do it, even though they invented the tank and the Italians that invented, Marconi invented the wireless tele, uh, wireless communication. And the Germans did that. And we didn't, I mean, for example, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with, but the first uh, multi shot rifle was used at Gettysburg in, in 1863. Then it was used in the wars of unification, German unification in Europe yet we're still doing charges against machine guns in World War One. So we talk about that. We give some examples of uh, the Navy failing to realize what they're doing in the nuclear submarines and the Air Force uh, failing to understand UAVs. Now, the problem is, though, and we have these other players, you can't expect, the. I would think that the average person would expect an administration is able to come in and just take over. What they don't understand is even if the Congress is supportive of a president, he only gets four hundred people in defense. The Department of Pentagon holds twenty-five thousand people, much less the thousands that are that are around the other buildings. The day the administration comes over in all its glory, there are twenty-five thousand there people there before, there's only twenty-five thousand rounded off the day after those four hundred come over, because you only have sixty who are confirmed by the Senate. You have another 130 who are senior executives or SESs, who are senior people who uh, fill different roles. And you have 250 who are secretaries and fill individual roles, it's just 400. The Army, Navy, and Air Force have 9,900 generals and 10,000 captains. All of have all this experience. So what happens is the administration has to be supported by the military. It can't ignore them. You can't do, for example, as Secretary Gates did, and decide, hey, these are the changes I'm going to make, and then turn to Mike Mullen, who's the chairman of Joint Chiefs instead, Staff, and says, what do you think, Mike? How about checking us? You don't, that's not, you don't make the decision and then ask the military, because the military knows so much. They don't change well. The military has all sorts of laws, but they're your source of knowledge. It used to be the Congress was also Quite contributory in this, but in 1995, Congressman Gingrich cut the staff by 30 percent. Since then, what we have found is individuals, senators, and congressmen have reduced their staff in Washington by 25 to 50 percent and sent those people home to help get reelected. And in addition, in the Congressional Research Service, etc cetera, were also cut 30 to 40 percent. So, what do you have? where you used to have all, I say all these people, there really weren't that many, but there were a number of people who were quite knowledgeable about military and like you can talk about. You still have guys like Senator Reed who are quite knowledgeable, but you don't have nearly as many as you have. You're, you're, and you don't have nearly the depth of knowledge except in, in procural interests.
2: So we're starred for knowledge is what it sounds like. I think that's a good point to, to wrap up with some takeaways. I know you said we can't condense this into a sound bite, and we're gonna ask you both to do your best. A sound bite for the takeaways of your new book, American Defense Reform, again by Anand Diprani and Admiral Dave Oliver. Takeaways. Uh, I'm gonna steal, I'm going to steal
0: uh, Dave's insight because ultimately it's about creating a process that empowers people uh, to all feel like their voice is heard uh, while basically holding them accountable when they refuse to, in a sense. Act in the national interest.
1: The process is more important than the personalities, and there are lessons learned that should guide the process. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward
2: to all our listeners reading the book and having this conversation. Keep going, moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.